0: Well, please turn with me in our Bibles uh, this morning to the letter of Jude. Jude is found at the end of our Bibles, just before the book of Revelation. And in the church Bibles, uh, you'll find this on page 1027. 1027. for certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in the late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, Casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, I'd like to again uh, take a break from our uh, short series that we're going to be doing on looking at some of the uh, doctrines of uh, our understanding of what God's grace entails when we think about the salvation of sinners. And this morning, I want us to uh, take a pause to be able to contemplate... um, Our understanding of God Himself. Uh, It's good for uh, churches to be thinking about who God is and how God reveals Himself to us. And a vital or an essential part of the Christian faith is our understanding of God. Christians believe that God is one, there is one God. And we also believe that the one God who exists exists as three persons. Father, son and holy spirit this is a foundational teaching of christianity and something that sets it apart uh, even from other abrahamic faiths but it is an essential part of the christian faith and we want to be able to understand not only that this shapes our understanding of who god is but the trinity or the triunity of that one god is something that shapes our understanding of salvation and it shapes our understanding of the life of the Christian believer, the life of faith. And this morning we want to see how uh, our understanding of God shapes even the way in which a believer lives their life uh, to the glory of God that those who believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are a people who are consecrated to the glory of this one God. And so this morning we're looking at because God is Trinity uh, and each person is involved in the work of our salvation, our faith is to be supported by that Trinitarian understanding. And we want to do so uh, by turning to the letter of Jude this morning. And we really want to concentrate our attention just on two verses, uh, verses 20 and 21. And we want to see how Jude is shaping and directing believers in the first century about how they are to live uh, in their own context. The author of this uh, letter identifies himself in the opening verse as a servant of Jesus Christ. He also identifies himself as a brother of James. Most likely, that brother, uh, James, uh, is referring to the brother of Jesus, uh, the same James who was a leader in the Jerusalem church, uh, as we read about in the book of Acts, which would make Jude here also uh, a brother of Jesus. Uh, But he doesn't identify himself in that term. Instead, he takes the low position uh, because he does not want to count himself as an equal with Jesus. But presumably he wants to take the more humble position, understanding himself as a servant of Christ himself. But he writes uh, this letter uh, to the church and he explains there in the opening that his desire was to write to them about their common faith, uh, to, to talk to them about their common salvation in and through the Lord Jesus. But instead he's writing this letter because he needs to exhort them to contend for the faith. Because, he says, certain people have crept into the church. Uh, There is a a problem uh, that the early church is facing with, and it's the problem of false teaching. Uh, There are some people that have crept into the church, he says, people that have done so undetected and who have perverted, who have changed, who have distorted uh, the grace of God and they have turned it into licentiousness. You notice there in verse 4, he describes these false teachers by two designations. They are described as ungodly people. When he describes them as being ungodly, uh, he's describing them in a way that highlights their their behavior. That an ungodly person is one who in their behavior shows no reverence for God. They are... a people; They are a, uh, an individual who lives without reference to God in the way they carry out their life. And so their ungodliness is accented by their way or their pattern of living. Uh, they are uh, ungodly then in promoting what is uh, displeasing according to God's will. But the second designation he uses there is really accenting how it is that they pervert or change the grace of God how it is that they are promoting licentiousness. And he says it's by way of their uh, of sensuality. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. In other words, the behaviors that they were promoting in the early church uh, were uh, sensual. They were uh, in the area of sexual immorality. And they were promoting this way of life in the church as though it doesn't matter how one lives their life. While they claimed to be Christian, they weren't actually living in submission to the lordship of God. They weren't actually concerned about what is God's will for how we then live, and they were distorting uh, the the message of God's grace. Later on in this letter, he talks about how they were really living uh, in submission to their own ungodly passions. So this letter was really written to help Christians to know how do you respond? How do you navigate false teaching? What do you do when inside the church there are difference, differences of understanding about what it means to live as a Christian? Uh, what what authority does God have over the behaviors of how we live our lives? And Jude here is calling on genuine believers to realize that there is problems in the church because the church is a mixed bag reality. Not everyone who comes under the realm of the church is a genuine Christian. Not everyone who names Jesus is ultimately belonging to Jesus. And Jude is telling these Christians that they need to know how to contend for the faith. They need to know what it is that they believe and they need to be prepared to stand for that. And so the the real challenge in the early church is protecting, it is guarding, it is upholding what is true so that God's grace and glory is not distorted ultimately, that the church does not ultimately be swayed by false teaching. And so as you read through the letter of Jude, you notice that most of this letter is actually a warning against false teachers a concentrated effort trying to describe what these false teachers are and what they are doing. And it's only in verse 17 that he comes to talk to directly the recipients, where he is now telling them what it is that they are to do. The first thing he tells them is is that they are to remember. Remember the apostles' teaching, that in the latter times there will be scoffers. When you hear the word scoffer, In our 21st century context, we probably jump to the conclusion a scoffer must be an atheist. Not necessarily so. A scoffer in the Bible is someone who asks the question, where is this God? That doesn't mean they're an atheist. It means that they do not accept what you're portraying about God. They're not accepting of the fact that there's a God who is going to judge. They're not accepting the fact that God is going to hold them to account for how they live their lives. And so they feel justified. They feel free to carry on living however they see fit because they do not grant the premise that there is a judgment day that is coming. They do not accept the premise that they will be held accountable for their actions. And so there are scoffers in the first century just as there are scoffers in every century. There are people who can grant that there is a creator, that there is a God, but what they push back against is the notion that there is any judgment that is coming, that there is any sense of accountability before God for how we live our lives. And this is really where uh, uh, these scoffers have come in uh, to the church in the days of Jude. But notice as Jude is talking about this dynamic he, he connects these scoffers with their present pattern of life. Notice down in verse 18, he says, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Those two ideas are not separated. What convinces a person that there is no accountability, that there is no day of judgment, but rather the soothing of their own conscience, the idea that they won't have to give an account for how they have lived? that there's no real meaning to their actions that they have to give an account for. And so Jude says, when you think about what they're doing, they're really trying to justify their own ungodly passions. They're trying to rubber stamp them as fine. But Jude goes on and he is describing these false teachers. Again, he describes them as being devoid of the spirit. Uh, Jude... um, Jude is able to look at their behaviors. And while they can claim to have dreams, they may have even used those dreams as a catalyst to justify their way of life. But Jude can look at their way of life and he can say, that is without the spirit. That is not of the spirit, the way that you're living. And so Jude very clearly differentiates the fact that there are genuine Christians But there are also those who have not the spirit of Christ in the way that they are living, in what they are promoting. And Jude stresses the need to make that distinction. Not all uh, are to be endorsed or embraced as genuine Christians. So how is it that Christians are to respond uh, when this false teaching emerges, whether it's the first century or whether it's the 21st century, when people would promote the idea that it doesn't really matter how you live, that, that God just wants you to be happy and God blesses any way that you want to live so long as you are happy. That's a distortion of God's grace. God's grace comes to us where we are at as sinners. But God's grace does not leave us where we are at. God is in the work of transforming sinners and those who are saved by his grace are now people who are consecrated to his purpose. He's shaping and molding his people so that they would delight in his ways, so that they would embrace his authority, so that they would say the Lord is good. And so here, as uh, Jude is highlighting this, uh, this dynamic, it calls attention to the way that we respond. And really the second half uh, of this letter, he begins to unpack Our understanding of false teaching, our understanding of how the Christian is to live, but also how the Christian is then to engage with those who have been caught up, those who are now filled with doubts about which way we should be living, those who are even deceived, who have been won over by these false teachers. Christians are not to give up, but rather to be able to speak truth into the situation. And you notice, as we come to our text this morning, that as as Jude is slowly getting to his audience, he tells them what is to be of priority for the Christian. There is false teaching that will grow in the church. There always is. So how does a Christian live when there's so much that is false around? And Jude writes to the church, and he says in verse 20, but you, beloved building yourselves up in your most holy faith, keep yourselves in the love of God. What is the priority of the Christian life? To keep yourself in the love of God. That's the central command in these verses. And everything else actually centers around it. It's revolving around it. And so if the Christian is to know how to navigate falsehood, to be able to... Minister where there is deception, to be able to respond where there is uh, distortions. They need to be anchored in something. And so Jude is saying what you need to be anchored in is the love of God. And to do that, Jude unpacks his understanding of God shaping the way of the Christian life. That The God who is shapes the way that the Christian lives to his glory. And we are keeping ourselves in the love of God by the Father's love, by the ministry of the Spirit, and by the hope that comes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to think about these verses in those three thoughts. First, we want to keep ourselves in the love of God by uh, the Father's love. Back in verse 20, though, he says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. The word there is the, for build is the word that means to build on something that is already built. In other words, it's not building where there's a void, but it is adding on to something that is already established. It's the idea of development. It's the idea of cultivating. Uh, you think of a garden. Uh, we might drive by someone's place, we might walk by someone's home, and we see they have a lovely garden. And we can be impressed by how, uh, uh, how rich the garden looks. But that garden may not have always been like that. The years of in, enriching the, the grounds, of putting nutrients in the ground, of pulling up the weeds, um, perhaps even expanding the size of the garden, allows it to become more and more suitable as a garden. But it's something that takes place over time. It's building and building over the years. And now you see what the garden has become. Jude writes to the church and he's saying, that's what the church is to be doing. That you're to be building, developing, growing in your faith. Uh, And that's, that's part of the reason why we need to be devoting ourselves to the word of God. Because it's not just, have I heard and believed? But we want to be useful in God's kingdom. We want to be faithful in God's service. We want to be consecrated to the Lord. And that faith is to grow. It is to cultivate and develop. And so here he is uh, uh, telling them to be built up in their faith. And we do that as we have God's word inform and shape our minds. We enrich our hearts when we have God's word woven into our thinking. When we are conscious uh, to remove the weeds that go against God's will. When we are making choices in life based on God's word. We are being built up in the most holy faith. But notice something else about what Jude says there in verse 20. He says, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. It's not just the content of the Christian message that you are to hear about and to store up but it's your commitment to that that what you have heard and what you have learned is to be put to practice and the more that we take God's word and we we see how it applies in a certain situation the more we're we're actually adding and building uh, a, a stable foundation for saying this is how my life fits this is how my life makes sense That everything comes back to what God's Word says. And so it is being built up because everything comes under the authority of God's Word. That's that's something that we all have to ask ourselves is not only do we have faith, do you have faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the the forgiveness of sins, of God's salvation? But is your faith something that is growing? Are you intentional about building your faith? Is your life something that you're looking to God's word to shape the way that you live your life? Because that's how the Christian is to live to the glory of God. And so he begins here by highlighting the fact that we are to be built up in our faith, where the message of good news shapes every area of our lives. But then in verse 21, notice he does come to the point, and he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Uh, The love of God is something basic to our understanding of God. The scriptures tell us God is love. But God shows his love to sinners in sending a savior in sending his son to deliver us from our sins. It's the love of God that gives a gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. And that love is to transform us. It is is something that shapes the whole of our lives. Uh, And Jude has alluded to this throughout this letter. You may have noticed as we read through the letter of Jude, in this very short letter that Jude identifies his recipients as beloved. Why does he do that? In fact, he does it four times in this letter. Why does he keep saying beloved, beloved? He does it because he wants Christians to understand that this is the defining characteristic of their relationship with Almighty God. That he wants them to think this is how God views them in Christ. That if they are trusting in Jesus, they are children of God. They are loved by the Father. They are beloved. And that is to shape the whole of their Christian life. But it also seems likely that Judas is saying that because he knows how hard it is for us to have that sink into our hearts and psyche. It's one thing for us uh, to hear that there is a God. But to accept that God approves of us and is favorable towards us is harder. It would be natural for us to think God's view of me is one of disappointment. When he sees all my failings. When he sees how I have fallen short in many ways. That God's patience with me is at an end. Because I have failed in so many ways. But Jude here is writing to the believer. And he is telling believers. In Christ. The way that God looks at you. Is as the object of his love. And you are to live in that orbit. You are to live understanding your identity. By Christ. And in Christ. And that's to shape you. That's why Paul could say in Galatians, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. His identity was wrapped up in Christ. And so it's not without purpose that Jude says beloved when he writes to the the church in the first century. He is trying to help them understand uh, the orbit that they are to be kept in. They are to live, remaining in God's love. But remaining or keeping themselves in God's love also entails a response to God's love as well. They are to be people who understand that they are to uh, honor the Lord by their own obedience, uh, uh, in obedience to his commands. That's what Jesus himself taught. In John 15, Jesus says, remain in his love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide, you will remain in my love. The way in which we express our love to God is by submitting to his revealed will. The apostle John says something similar in his letter. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Our The commandments of God become the litmus test of our love. Rather than thinking about God's commandments as ropes that tie us up or that restrain us, they're actually the the meter, they're, they're, they're the standard by which we can say, do I love God? How do I know whether I love God? When we say, I want to do your will." That's what Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done. Can you pray that part of the Lord's Prayer? Your will be done in how I behave. Your will be done with regards to my sexuality. Your will be done in terms of how I live to the glory of God. Or are you still operating on the mindset that I want to serve myself? There's the clash. There's what Jude is really zeroing in on and saying these false teachers are deceivers because they don't love God and they're not remaining in the love of God themselves. So there is the remaining in God's love by keeping his commandments, but we are also to keep ourselves in the love of God uh, by the Spirit. He goes on there, uh, uh, Back in verse 20, beloved, uh, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. A prayer is something that is to be ongoing in the Christian's life. We are to be expressing and talking to God. Prayer, though, is not simply venting. It's not just getting things off our chest. And prayer is not the same as simply repeating a mantra, a saying over and over There's a reason why Jude describes it as praying in the spirit. Meaning that prayer is something that we engage in as a spiritual exercise. It is something that we do as we speak with God. We are needing God's help even to do that. It is an act of faith, trusting in God, even as we try to utter uh, our requests to God. Even as we seek to make our faith known to God. We are leading and being led by the Spirit. But it's also appropriate to speak about being praying in the Spirit because it's through prayer that we have our mind and our affections affections consecrated to God's intention. The Spirit works then to consecrate his people even as they pray. They are developing discernment. We, we pray in order to bring every thought captive to the will of God. We pray uh, to have our thoughts and feelings uh, shaped according to God's will. We also pray as a, as a form of defense. John Owen, the Puritan from the 17th, uh, 17th century, once said, if we do not abide in prayer, we abide in temptation. Why should we pray? Because we need a defense. We are engaged in a spiritual battle of faith to live by what God has said and not simply passively drifting with the world around us. We pray for the discernment from the Spirit. We pray for the protection that comes from the Spirit. We pray for uh, independence, asking for courage and compassion to deal rightly in our situations. As Jude goes on to say, these Christians are going to have to be able to minister to those who are doubting, to those who are being pulled back and forth. They need to know how to do that. And so they need to pray. Because everything they do is dependent on the Spirit. So they keep themselves in the love of God by knowing the love of God uh, in Christ Jesus. The Father sends the Son Uh, to redeem sinners and to make them children of God themselves. They keep themselves in the love of God as they submit to his commandments. They keep themselves in the love of God as they are ministered to by the spirit and as they pray uh, through the spirit, uh, by the spirit, through the son unto the father. But they also are uh, to keep themselves in the love of God by waiting for the mercy of their Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Notice that in the second half verse 21 waiting for things can be hard Uh, when we wait for something uh, we might wonder if it is ever going to come but it helps us to be able to live not just for the moment but to be able to look ahead there's more there's a bigger picture that I need to live in light of there's a future and here Jude is reminding those not just to live for the moment but to live in light of the bigger picture, to wait on the Lord, to be people of hope. Christianity has a message of hope. It has a message of the future, that God will send his son again, and he will save those who are eagerly waiting for them, that he will set all things right, and in that we can hope, through the good and through the bad, because our God is in control. Do you notice how Jude is actually able to dissect and actually remove the poison of false teaching because in the early church what was happening is is there were people who Jude says were devoid of the spirit they didn't have the spirit and Jude is able to say you are to minister and to pray in the spirit there were people who were distorting the grace of God, the love of God in pursuing their own sensuality And Jude was able to say the correction to that is to keep yourself under God's authority. To live expressing that love for God first. There were people who were denying the Lord Jesus Christ as master and authority over them. And Jude is able to say, recognize that the Lord Jesus will come back and he will judge. We're able to live in light of the future and we're able to submit to God's revelation. But not only does he dissect and remove the poison, Judas showing that his understanding of God shapes the way of life. His understanding of God as Father, Son, Holy Spirit shapes the life of faith. And he goes on, and we see the practical relevance uh, of uh, this Trinitarian understanding of God. They are to live by faith. Those who come to believe in the Lord Jesus are to be built up in this most holy faith. They are to be people who express love. Those who have discovered the love of God uh, in sending his son are to respond by loving God, by obeying his commandments through the renewing work of the spirit. And they are to be people who live by hope. They are to wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus, for his mercy that leads to eternal life. The Christian life then is one of faith, hope, and love. The love of the Father, the grace that comes in Jesus that leads us to hope, the faith that comes by the renewing work of the Spirit and that we operate on day by day. The Trinity is not an abstract doctrine. Our understanding of God shapes all of reality. It shapes the way that we understand salvation. It shapes the way that we think about the Christian life. It shapes everything. And it's how the scriptures are written in light of what God has revealed about himself, that we might be able to be faithful to him and consecrated to his purpose. We are to remain in the Father's love and to be shaped by the hope in Christ's coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about our own time, that we would be people who are able to contend for the faith, people that know the truth of your revelation in Jesus Christ, of the love of God and the mercy that is shown in your son. Help us, Lord, by your spirit to also be people who uh, are guided in wisdom, uh, to be able to save those who are doubting, to be able to have mercy on them and to snatch others from the fire, but also being able to uh, uh, hate even the, uh, the garment that is stained by uh, the flesh. Lord, we live in very uh, confusing times, and we pray that you would make your people anchored on the truth and equipped uh, to be useful servants. So bless us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.